Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 84 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about private revelations. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. All through history, God has made himself known to mankind, such as through the prophets in biblical times. But after the Bible, something changed in the way God makes himself known. Some Christians say that the age of prophecy is over and God no longer gives revelations at all. But most Christians have recognized that he still does and has done all the way down through the centuries. Yet we shouldn't believe it every time someone claims they've had a revelation from God. So how can we tell which revelations are credible and which aren't? How does the church look at the matter? And what does it mean when the church approves an apparition? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, I understand this episode is going to be a little different than how we usually do it. How are we going to proceed today? Normally, what we do is we take an individual mystery and look at it from the perspectives of faith and reason. This time, though, this is kind of a keystone episode that provides the basis for evaluating multiple mysteries. This time, we're not looking at an individual mystery, but a whole class of them, private revelations. In previous episodes, we've looked at individual proposed revelations like Fatima in episodes 40, uh, 64 and 65, and also La Salette in episode 60. And, you know, we did our best on those occasions to evaluate them. But this time, what we're going to do is look at the general principles that the church uses when evaluating a reported revelation. So instead of pulling things apart into the faith and reason perspectives, we're just going to do a straightforward look at here are the criteria the church uses to evaluate such things. All right. So let's start with defining our terms. There are a number of terms we're going to be using this episode, and people may not be familiar with all of them. So what do terms like vision, apparition, and revelation even mean? The most straightforward is probably vision, because we use that word in ordinary English. You know, vision is the faculty that lets us see things. So a vision is something that you see. In a religious context, a vision is an experience a person has where God lets them see something supernaturally. They may experience the vision as if they're seeing it with their physical eyes. You know, for example, they may be so caught up in the experience, they're not even aware of their physical surroundings. They're just focused on this vision they're seeing. Or they may experience it as a kind of interior mental vision, even though they're still aware of their surroundings. Either way, it's still a vision. What if a person has an experience that doesn't involve seeing something? What if they just hear a heavenly voice? That's a related phenomenon known as a locution. Uh, we don't use the word locution in ordinary speech that much, uh, but it comes from the Latin word locutio, which means a speech. And you're probably familiar with Locutus of Borg from <laughs> Star Trek The Next Generation. He is Captain Picard as a Borg. He was supposed to speak for the Borg, so they called him Locutus, which in Latin would mean that which has been spoken. Apparently Again, the Borg speak Latin. Kind of, sort of. Again, because uh, there is a Latin word for speaker and it's not locutus. <laughs> okay. Again, a person might experience the voice as something they hear with their physical ears so that it does seem to be physically audible to them. Or they might just hear it in their mind knowing it's not physical, in which case it's called an interior locution because they hear it inside their head. All right. So what's an apparition? You can get a handle on this term because it's uh, based on the verb to appear. You can hear how apparition and appearance sound the same. If God or an angel or a saint appears to you, then they're making an appearance and you're having an apparition. Apparition is a kind of old-fashioned term, but the word appearance would mean the same thing in contemporary English. Does an apparition have to be a visual appearance, like in a vision? Well, it's the way the term is normally used. Uh, you know, when we talk about someone making it a, an appearance, like, say, at a party, uh, we normally think about being able to see them. 
But we also talk about people making appearances on podcasts or radio shows where you only hear them. So I guess you could use it to refer to an audible experience like a locution. And in fact, some authors do speak of interior locutions, which are purely audible as visions, even though you don't see anybody. That's not the normal use. But there's some overlap in how people use these terms. Okay. What's a prophecy? In common English, a prophecy is a prediction of something that will happen in the future. But that's not what it means in the Bible. In Greek, the word prophetes means spokesman. So a prophet is anybody who speaks for God, whether he's telling you about the future or not. Sometimes God may want to tell you about the future, in which case you get a predictive prophecy. But other times uh, God may want to tell you something else, like stop committing adultery, in which case the prophecy has a moral message rather than a predictive one. All right. What's a revelation? Again, you can get a handle on this one because it's based on the verb to reveal. And ultimately, that goes back to Latin roots. To reveal meant to remove the veil from something, to uncover or disclose it, allowing someone else to see it. And so every revelation is thus a disclosure of something someone didn't originally know. And in a way, you know, that's kind of the purpose of every vision, locution or apparition, to show someone something they either didn't know at all or weren't taking as seriously as they should or something like that, revealing some new thing they need to do or think about. So does that mean that every vision involves a revelation? You might think that, and sometimes the word revelation is used to include all visions, but some authors use the term revelation in a more specialized sense. They will use it to refer to things that you do understand. You know, sometimes when someone sees a vision, it can include symbols, and the person having the vision may not know what those symbols mean. An example of that is in the first part of Daniel chapter 7. The prophet Daniel sees a vision of four beasts, but he doesn't initially know what they mean. Then in the second half of the chapter, the meaning of the beasts is explained to him by an angel, so he does understand them. The way some authors use the term revelation, it's not until Daniel understands the beasts that their meaning is revealed to him. So he initially had a vision he didn't understand, and it becomes a revelation to him once he understands it. How did revelation change once the Bible was finished? Already within the Bible, we get the sense that something is coming to a head or a close. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, there is a sense that God's revelation of himself to mankind has been building. And in the New Testament, that revelation comes to its high point with God sending his son, who represents the greatest form of God's revelation. So, for example, in John fourteen nine, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So in some way, Jesus is given a definitive revelation of the Father. The first couple of verses in the book of Hebrews say, In many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by a son. So this is a new and greater revelation of God. In verse 3 of the book of Jude, we read about how the faith has been once for all delivered to the saints. Now that doesn't mean that Every single point of doctrine had been revealed at the time Jude wrote, but it does mean that the core or substance of the Christian faith had been definitively revealed, and so there weren't going to be any major yet-to-be-revealed teachings. So Revelation, in some sense, seemed to be coming to a close. So when did the shift occur? The early Christians recognized that the apostles whom Jesus appointed would continue to be bearers of revelation. In fact, in John 16, 13, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you, the disciples, into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, meaning from God or Jesus, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So that's a reference to ongoing revelation that the disciples would have, including material about the future, like what we find in the book of Revelation, which deals with future matters. But because there was this sense that the era of this kind of revelation was closing, early Christians saw the death of the, of the apostles and the closing of the apostolic age as an important shift so that going forward, 
you wouldn't have the same kind of binding revelations that we found in the Bible itself. Does that mean that God won't give any revelation beyond this point? No, God might still give people information about how to live the Christian faith or about particular future events, but he wouldn't reveal any new doctrines, any fundamental teachings that had to do with the substance of the faith. And so down through the centuries, Christians have recognized that God did give exactly these kind of more minor revelations. So, but how did the Christians distinguish between these ongoing minor revelations and the more fundamental revelations found in the Bible? The terminology that was eventually established dealt with whether a revelation was directed to the church as a whole across all of its history or towards certain individuals within that history. If a revelation was directed to the church as a whole, like the prophecies found in the Bible, whether they're predictive prophecies or not, it was called public revelation on the idea that the church is the public, and so everyone in the church needs to accept this revelation. But if a revelation was directed to only certain people after the age of the apostles, let's say, it was called a private revelation. This terminology has often been pointed out. It's not really entirely satisfactory because the term private revelation can be a little misleading. For example, it can convey the idea that a given revelation is only for an individual person or even that it needs to be kept secret. But neither of these is true. So-called private revelations can be meant for many people, even the whole church in a given age, but not for the church across all of its history. Consequently, sometimes people use other terms for private revelation. For example, the Council of Trent used the term special revelation instead of private revelation. So you will find other terms. You mentioned that some Christians don't believe in ongoing revelation. What can you tell us about that? This is an idea that started in the Protestant community about 500 years ago. It was basically unknown before that time. All the historic groups of Christians, Catholics, Orthodox, Copts, Armenians, Assyrians, etc., have reported private revelations and recognized their existence down through the centuries. But the Protestant reformers didn't like these, so they began to claim that not just public revelation ended with the apostles, but that all revelation did. How did they justify this claim? Not very easily. In the Protestant community, if you want to justify a doctrine, you need to prove it sola scriptura or by scripture alone. And there aren't any verses that clearly state or imply that God is going to stop giving revelation. In fact, you find St. Paul saying things like this in 1 Thessalonians 5. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So apparently there were some people in Thessalonica who were uncomfortable with prophecies and were looking down on people who had them. But St. Paul indicates that by doing that, they're quenching the work of God's Spirit. He thus tells them not to look down on prophecies, but to test them and to accept the ones that pass the test. That's a standing command of the New Testament. So unless you can find verses that say or imply that all revelation is going to end with the death of the last apostle, this is going to govern, this test Paul has laid out, is going to govern the rest of the church age, which is, in fact, what most Christians have always understood. And even in the Protestant community, there has been a softening on this point, and many Protestants today, especially Charismatics and Pentecostals, acknowledge that God continues to give revelations in some form. If we're supposed to test revelations and hold fast to what is good, like St. Paul said, how are we supposed to do that? This has been a question that God's people have always faced, and a couple of tests are provided in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 18, we read, If you say in your heart, how may we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. So the first test is whether or not a prophet produces a supernatural sign to give evidence that he's really in touch with the supernatural. If he tries to produce a sign and fails, like making a prediction that doesn't come true, that's evidence he's not really in touch with God. The second test is found in Deuteronomy 13, where we read, If a prophet arises among you, or a dreamer of dreams, and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder which he tells you comes to pass... 
And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or to that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In this case, the prophet names a sign and it does come to pass, suggesting he, he's genuinely in touch with the supernatural. The problem is his message, because it's already been revealed that we're not supposed to worship other gods. So his message conflicts with prior revelation and thus needs to be ignored. Uh, we find the same basic test in the New Testament. In John, in 1 John 4, we read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are of God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. So it's already been revealed that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and God has validated Jesus' role in his plan by raising him from the dead. Therefore, any spirit which denies Jesus' role, such as denying the incarnation, is not a spirit that's speaking for God. Its message is inconsistent with prior known revelation. So the two foundational tests are, first, whether there's anything demonstrably supernatural about the revelation, and second, whether a given revelation is consistent with what has already been revealed. A lot of doctrinal development has occurred in the last 20 centuries. Has the church formulated a more detailed set of guidelines for evaluating private revelations today? Yeah, in 1978, St. Paul VI approved a document issued on that subject by the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and the document is called Norms Regarding the Manner of Proceeding in the Discernment of Presumed Apparitions or Revelations. I love how they give these <laughs> kaiju-sized titles to documents in, in Rome. It rolls off the tongue. <laughs> yeah. This document was originally issued confidentially to bishops for evaluating reports of apparitions in their own diocese, but over the years it leaked. It got out and started to be published in a variety of places, including JimmyAiken.com. And in 2011, the CDF finally threw in the towel and published it on their own website. It's like, everybody knows this already, so here it is. So what does the document say? It acknowledges that bishops are in a kind of dilemma today regarding apparitions. Uh, in the past, they could kind of take their time in making an evaluation because people didn't move around a lot and didn't have access to the mass media, which didn't yet exist. But there's more pressure today because if there's a report of an apparition, it can be flashed across the globe instantly, and then easy travel means pilgrims may start showing up. So this creates a need for speedier evaluations than in the past. At the same time, these evaluations need to be done very carefully. So the document recommends a procedure that balances the need for careful examination with the need to act more quickly than in the past. And what's the nature of this procedure? In the past, when bishops really could take their time in forming a mature judgment, the document notes that they would commonly end up issuing one of two decisions about an apparition. The first was a judgment that the apparition was constat de supernaturalitate, basically that it was established as a genuinely supernatural event. And in this context, supernatural means not just from any supernatural source, but specifically from God or, you know, one of God's saints or angels. So with his permission, if, you know, you could say, well, the devil's supernatural too, but that's not what they mean here. If they say constat de supernaturalitate, they mean this thing is fundamentally of God. The second was a judgment that the apparition was non-constat de supernaturalitate, meaning that it was not established as genuinely supernatural. In this case, it might have a purely natural explanation, you know, mental illness, for example, or it might be from a supernatural source other than God, you know, like demons, or there might not be enough evidence one way or another to settle the question. So you had these two basic judgments. It's either established or not established as being supernatural, meaning of God. Is there a third judgment that could be issued? Well, you sometimes find people, especially on the Internet, discussing a third judgment called constat de non-supernaturalitate, which would mean established as not supernatural. 
But the CDF document doesn't mention this judgment and does not list it as one of the traditional judgments a bishop might reach. So it's not part of the framework that the CDF uses, at least not currently. This system has only the two judgments, a positive one that it is established as supernatural and a negative one that it is not established as supernatural. All right. So what is the procedure that the CDF says bishops should use? The document lays out both positive and negative criteria for evaluating an apparition, and it lays out a three-stage process. When ecclesiastical authority is informed of a presumed apparition or revelation, it will be its responsibility, A, first to judge the fact according to positive and negative criteria, B, then if this examination results in a favorable conclusion to permit some public manifestation of cult or of devotion, Overseeing this with great prudence, equivalent to the formula for now nothing stands in the way, or pro nunc nihil obstare, and C, finally, in light of time past and of experience, with special regard to the fecundity of spiritual fruit generated from this new devotion, to express a judgment regarding the authenticity and supernatural character, if the case so merits. So, the first stage of the process is an investigation. And invariably, that means that the bishop appoints a team of experts to look into the matter. Then the positive and negative criteria that the document lays out are applied. If the results of the investigation are positive, we proceed to the second stage where the bishop gives a kind of temporary approval indicating that for now, nothing obstructs the faithful from engaging in a form of public devotion connected with the apparition. Note that this doesn't mean the bishop has approved the apparition itself or said that it's authentic. That's something that doesn't happen until the third stage. He just lets people publicly engage in a form of devotion connected with the apparition for now, but he's supposed to keep watching the situation with great prudence. In fact, later on, the document says that when the bishop or other church authorities approves such a devotion, they must be careful that the faithful not interpret this practice as approval of the supernatural nature of the fact on the part of the church. So approved devotion does not mean approved apparition. Finally, in light of time past and of experience, bearing in mind especially the good or bad spiritual fruit connected with the devotion, he may issue a judgment regarding the authenticity and supernatural character of the apparition, and it's only at this point that the bishop might give formal approval to the apparition. What does it mean for the bishop to authorize a public devotion connected with the apparition? Public devotion means that a devotion is done with church authorization, like inviting a, the congregation in a church to say a prayer. Sometimes apparitions will suggest particular prayers to foster people's devotion, you know, like the Fatima prayer, the, oh, my Jesus, forgive us our sins, save us from the fires of hell and lead all souls to heaven, especially those who are in most need of thy mercy. That was proposed by Our Lady of Fatima. And anyone who wants can say such prayers privately. But if you want to say it in a church, or if you want to have as part of, you know, here's what the congregation is doing, let's all say this prayer together. Or if you want to have a, even if you're not in a church, if you want to have a priest or deacon, deacon, a church official leading the faithful in saying such prayers, that's what makes it public devotion. And the bishop needs to give approval for that. It's when it's in an official context that it, it's public devotion as opposed to just private devotion. What does it mean if he ends up approving not just the devotion, but the apparition as a whole? Does that mean the faithful are required to believe it? No, because private revelation is not binding on the church as a whole the way public revelation is. Uh, theologians will discuss to what degree is it binding on the people who receive it, you know, the visionaries themselves or so forth. But when it comes to the the public as a whole, it is not binding. In his 2010 document, Verbum Domini, Pope Benedict XVI explains what ecclesiastical approval of an apparition means. Ecclesiastical approval of a private revelation essentially means that its message contains nothing contrary to faith and morals. It is licit to make it public, and the faithful are authorized to give to it their prudent adhesion. A private revelation can introduce new emphases, give rise to new forms of piety, or deepen older ones. It can have a certain prophetic character and can be a valuable aid for better understanding and living the gospel at a certain time. 
Consequently, it should not be treated lightly. It is a help which is proffered, but its use is not ob- obligatory. So ecclesiastical approval of an apparition or revelation means three things. First, the revelation doesn't contradict church teaching. Second, it's lawful to make it public. And third, the faithful are authorized to adhere to it if it seems prudent to them to do so, but, quote, its use is not obligatory, close quote. That's what it means if the church ends up approving a revelation. But what if the bishop does his initial investigation and finds problems? It depends on the severity of the problems. If the problems are serious enough, like the reported apparition says something flatly heretical, then the whole thing may stop at the initial investigation stage. The bishop may immediately issue a warning to the faithful that they are to have nothing to do with it and the apparition is not genuine. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. (laughs) If the problems are of a lesser nature, like let's say the apparition is claiming some things that are doctrinally ambiguous, then the bishop may ask the visionary for clarifications to see if what's being said is actually in conflict with the faith or not. If the initial difficulties can be cleared up, then the bishop may proceed to the second stage where he gives the temporary permission to have a public devotion connected with the apparition. But if new problems emerge, like the visionary or other people going off the rails and producing bad spiritual fruits, he may yank this permission. So I want to pause for a moment and take a moment here uh, for a very important part of what we do, which is to thank our patrons who make this show possible. Uh, it's wonderful to have their support so we could talk about the the private revelations and, and all of these very important uh, topics. Uh, this week, we're thanking Clint V, Allison H, Jeff G, Jeremiah N, and Aaronews R. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, let's talk about the criteria that the document gives for evaluating apparitions. What does it say? As we mentioned, it divides them into positive criteria and negative criteria. That is, uh, ones that support the authenticity of the apparition and ones that don't. It lists two basic positive criteria. The first is, quote, moral certitude or at least great probability of the existence of the fact acquired by means of serious investigation, close quote. And that means after the bishop and his experts have done a serious investigation, he is either morally certain or at least thinks that it's very probable that the apparition is genuinely supernatural. This is where evidence of the supernatural would come in, like whether the apparition has made predictions that were either true or false, or whether there's some other miraculous event associated with the apparition, you know, maybe a healing or something that medical science cannot explain. The second basic criterion is described as, quote, particular circumstances relative to the existence and to the nature of the fact, close quote which is pretty ambiguous. So the document spells out what that means, saying, One, personal qualities of the subject or of the subjects, in particular psychological equilibrium, honesty and rectitude of moral life, sincerity and habitual docility towards ecclesiastical authority, the capacity to return to a normal regimen of a life of faith, etc. Two, as regards revelation, true theological and spiritual doctrine and immune from error, Three, healthy devotion and abundant and constant spiritual fruit. For example, spirit of prayer, conversion, testimonies of charity, etc. So let's look at each of these in a little more detail. Okay, what about the personal qualities of the subject or subjects? You'll note that the document envisions the possibility that there may be more than one subject involved in the apparition. And that's because sometimes uh, apparitions are reported by groups of people like the two children at La Salette, or the three children who reported seeing Our Lady of Fatima. The bishop is supposed to take into account their personal qualities and whether they lend credibility to the apparition. If the subjects are psychologically well-balanced, that adds credibility. It also adds credibility if they're honest and sincere people who are leading moral lives. That doesn't mean that they had to be living moral lives before the apparition. God can and does speak to people who are living immoral lives and encourage them to repent. But if they don't repent, 
it doesn't add credibility to the apparition. It does add credibility if they're habitually docile towards ecclesiastical authority, meaning that they are respectful towards the Pope and the bishops and they don't resist or disobey the bishop's instructions. And finally, it adds credibility to the apparition if they're able to return to a normal mode of living the Christian life once the apparition is over. So the second positive criterion was, quote, true theological and spiritual doctrine and immune from error, end quote. What does that mean? At a minimum, it means that the apparition didn't say anything that contradicts church teaching. That doesn't mean that the apparition had to say anything at all. Some apparitions don't. For example, the 1879 apparition at Knock, Ireland didn't say anything. People saw St. Mary, St. Joseph, and St. John the Evangelist, but none of them spoke. Yet two of the local bishops had the event investigated and found it credible. What this criterion does mean is that if the apparition says something, it has to be doctrinally sound. Interestingly, it doesn't mean that the bishop needs to agree with everything that the apparition says. One of the most influential books on the subject of apparitions was published in the 1730s by Pope Benedict XIV. And it was actually published when he was still a cardinal before he was elected pope. Its title, translated from Latin, and it's another one of these kaiju-sized titles, was On the Beatification of the Servants of God and on the Canonization of Blesseds. But since we like snappier titles in English, the English version has been published as a three-volume set called Heroic Virtue. (laughs) And the third volume, which we'll have a link to, deals with evaluating private revelations. One of the things that Benedict says is that it's quite possible for an apparition to discuss and endorse ideas that aren't matters of doctrine, but of theological opinion. For example, theologians of different schools of thought have debated whether Christ would become incarnate if mankind had not fallen into sin. Some say that he would have still become incarnate, even though mankind hadn't fallen. Others say, no, the reason he became incarnate was because we fell, and so he, that he needed to redeem us. The church doesn't have a teaching one way or the other, so this is a matter of free opinion. A visionary might think, correctly or incorrectly, that the apparition had told them the answer to this question. But since it's a matter of free opinion, it wouldn't contradict church teaching either way. And so a bishop might approve an apparition, since it doesn't contradict church teaching, even though he might personally have a different opinion on this theological question that's a matter of open debate. So bishops don't necessarily have to agree with everything in an apparition they're approving. The third criterion the document mentioned was, quote, healthy devotion and abundant and constant spiritual fruit, end quote. What can we say about that? The document gives as examples people displaying a spirit of prayer, conversion, meaning either conversion from sin or conversion to the faith, and testimonies of charity. It doesn't say whether this is on the part of just the visionary or whether it also includes other people, but the latter seems to be the case. One of the reasons that God gives private revelations is to help people produce spiritual fruit. So if you see that happening, it lends credibility to the apparition. But it's important to note that what constitutes healthy devotion and spiritual fruit is a subjective matter. Devotees of an apparition will naturally claim that they display these things. I mean, they're not going to be saying, oh, yeah, I became involved in this apparition and now I have an unhealthy devotion and poor spiritual fruit. You know, they're, they're not going to say that. They're, they're going to say, yes, we have these things. But it's the bishop who's tasked with judging whether this is really the case. Also, sometimes devotees of a particular apparition will point to its spiritual fruit as if that just of itself proved the apparition is true. But that isn't the case either. In the first place, spiritual fruit is just one of the positive criteria lending support to an apparition. It's not the only one. In the second place, people could get inspired to leave holy to lead holier lives even if an apparition is not genuine. I mean, maybe they think it is and that leads them to get closer to God and that's great, but that doesn't mean the apparition was genuine. And in the third place, an apparition can lose credibility due to the negative criteria which we have yet to consider. So even if you say, yeah, there's positive spiritual fruit here, we got to look at the negative criteria too. Okay, so let's consider those. What are the negative criteria? 
to some extent, they mirror the positive criteria, but they're fleshed out differently. And Dom, you and I can go back and forth on these so I can offer commentary on each criterion. The first one is manifest error concerning the fact. This would mean that there's something clearly wrong on the level of objective fact connected with the apparition. Failed predictions would be an example of that. So would evidence that the whole thing is a hoax. For example, recently in Texas, there's been a woman claiming to see visions of the Virgin Mary who is supposed to miraculously cause roses to appear in the vicinity of the visionary, which her devotees then find and say, oh, Mary has left us this rose as a sign. Well, it's not Mary leaving the roses. Security camera footage has emerged of the visionary surreptitiously dropping roses for her devotees to find. So it's not Mary that's materializing roses. The lady is planting them. <laughs> the local bishop swiftly declared the whole apparition a hoax and warned the faithful away from it. Later, the visionary said that demons tricked her into leaving roses to discredit her visions. And that's exactly what they did. Uh, her actions did discredit her visions. We then come to the second of the negative criteria, which is doctrinal errors attributed to God himself or to the Blessed Virgin Mary or to some saint in their manifestations, taking into account, however, the possibility that the subject might have added, even unconsciously, purely human elements or some error of the natural order to an authentic supernatural revelation. So if an apparition says things that are contrary to church teaching, which is what doctrine is, that's different than theological opinion. If it's a official church teaching, that makes it doctrine. If it's a matter of free debate, it's a matter of theological opinion. So doctrine and theology are not the same thing. If an apparition says something that's contrary to doctrine, it's a sign the apparition is false. And this is basically the same test that we saw in Deuteronomy and in 1 John, where if a revelation was to be disregarded, if it's contradicted by what we already know, by what's already established doctrine. But notice that the apparition doesn't have to be completely free from error. Uh, the document acknowledges that the seer might have added, even unconsciously, purely human elements or some error of the natural order to what's otherwise an authentic revelation. The document then provides a reference to section 336 of St. Ignatius of Loyola's spiritual exercises to document this fact, but I think an even clearer statement is found in Benedict XIV's book on beatification and canonization. He writes, It may happen that a saint may think, from preconceived opinions and from fixed ideas in the imagination, that certain things are revealed to him by God, which yet God does not reveal. Raptures may be above nature, and in their substance divine, but in their circumstances conformed to the ideas naturally received, which God leaves in the state that they are in, since it was of no moment to the end he had in view. He gives examples of revelations of holy women in which Christ appeared nailed with three nails to the cross, sometimes with four, and also those in which St. Jerome stands with a lion, or St. James appears in the dress of a pilgrim. Benedict goes on to suggest that God's real purpose in showing people visions of Jesus being crucified is to help them love Christ and meditate on what he did for us, not to teach us the precise number of nails that were used. That's a detail supplied by the imagination of the seers. So some seers see him nailed with three nails. Other seers see him nailed with four nails. That's really not what's important to the end that God has in mind, which is helping people love Jesus more and think about what he did. So don't count the number of nails and expect that to be divinely revealed. Similarly, St. Jerome is often depicted with a lion in art, and St. James is often dressed like a pilgrim in art. Benedict says Jerome didn't really own a lion. And James is depicted as a pilgrim because people often make pilgrimages in his honor in France. But these images are how people are used to visualizing these saints because they've seen them that way in art. And so that's how they sometimes appear in visions. But you shouldn't read those details as if God was revealing that Jerome really had a lion or that James really dressed like this way. Uh, this is just how they're conventionally depicted. And it's because of the seer's consciousness that they have those elements. 
Similarly, in the 20th century, the famous theologian Reginald Garrigou Lagrange, in his book The Three Ages of the Interior Life, wrote, Even in revelations approved as probable by the church, some error may slip in. For the saints themselves may attribute to the Holy Ghost what proceeds from themselves, or may falsely interpret the meaning of a divine revelation, or interpret it in too materialistic a manner, as, for example, the disciples interpreted Christ's remark about St. John in John 21:23 to mean that the latter would not die. The explanation of this possibility of error lies in the fact that there are many degrees in prophetic light from the simple supernatural instinct to perfect revelation. When there is only prophetic instinct, the meaning of things revealed and even the divine origin of the revelation may remain unknown. Thus it was that Caiaphas prophesied without being aware of it in John 11.50, when he said that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. So I wanted to stress this point that apparitions don't always have to be 100% accurate in every detail. They can incorporate material from the consciousness of the seer because you often encounter people who treat whatever a visionary says as if it's automatically true, an attitude that mistakenly puts private revelation on the same level as public revelation. It's important to remember that even when the church approves an apparition, it doesn't mean every detail of the apparition is guaranteed. So we need to, as Pope Benedict XVI said in discussing approved apparitions, we need to be prudent in how we approach what's said even in an approved apparition. So we need to be prudent. We need to be cautious. And it also means that if you find a small error in an apparition, you shouldn't on that basis write off the whole thing. As long as it doesn't contain doctrinal errors, it might still be a valid apparition, but the seer's consciousness may have added or misunderstood something. This brings us to the third negative criterion. Evidence of a search for profit or gain strictly connected to the fact. So if the seers are trying to get some kind of personal advantage out of the apparition, that reduces its credibility. This advantage could be money or it could be some other form of gain like personal fame or adulation. The document also says that it needs to be strictly connected to the apparition. And that's kind of ambiguous, uh, but it suggests that the gain needs to be somehow, you know, kind of closely connected to the apparition. For example, if the apparition directs people to give the seer money, that would clearly be in this category. In fact, the first century Christian document known as the Didache warns that any prophet who claims to be speaking in the spirit and says, give me money, is to be ignored. Similarly, if a seer signs a book contract with a major publishing house and goes on a world promotional tour to promote the apparition and sell this book, that would seem to fall into this area too. You know, you're, they're trying to make money off this thing. But I'm not sure if the same thing would apply, you know, after the apparitions are all over and if a publisher comes to a seer and says, would you write a book of memoirs telling us what happened and we'll give you a 10% royalty and it's a minor publisher and there's no world press tour to promote the book. Yeah, that, that might not be strictly connected enough with the apparition to diminish its credibility. I mean, that might be a more reasonable thing to do, not a clearly profit-seeking thing. And, you know, that would be a call for the bishop to make. We then come to the fourth negative criterion. Gravely immoral acts committed by the subject or his or her followers when the fact occurred or in connection with it. Once again, this doesn't apply to things that happened before the apparition because God can reveal himself to sinners and encourage them to repent. But if the gravely immoral acts happen at the time of the apparition or afterwards, it's different. In trying to think of an example of this, the first thing that occurred to me is a story that's told in Boccaccio's work, The Decameron. This is a classic 14th century work of Italian literature where a group of people go out to a country house to avoid the Black Death. And while they're there, they tell 100 fictional stories over 10 days. That's the Decameron, the 10 days, uh, to keep themselves entertained. One of the stories that's told on the fourth day is about a priest named Friar Alberto, who claims to have an apparition of the angel Gabriel. He tells a foolish noblewoman that the angel Gabriel has fallen in love with her. He also tells her that Gabriel 
wants to use the priest's body so he can experience human love. Meanwhile, Friar Alberto's soul will be up in paradise, so he won't even know what's going on. It's going to be Gabriel in the priest's body. Lady Dimwit, as she's referred to in the story, is very flattered by the angel's attentions and agrees to this. So Friar Alberto proceeds to sleep with her. Eventually, Friar Alberto is exposed as a fraud and gets his comeuppance. But for our purposes, this would be an example of a gravely immoral act being committed by a visionary and directly in connection with the supposed apparition. I mean, Gabriel supposedly has told Friar Alberto to do this, and it's gravely immoral. However, you will note that the way this criterion is phrased, the gravely immoral acts don't have to be in connection with the apparition. They could just be there. If a visionary just randomly goes out and robs a bank, even though he doesn't say the Virgin Mary told me to rob the bank, that also would count as, well, you're doing something gravely immoral, and that doesn't really increase confidence that you've had a genuine vision of the Virgin Mary. Also note that it doesn't have to be the seer. It can also be the seer's followers who are committing gravely immoral acts. For example, if the seer has a person officially promoting the apparition, like maybe organizing pilgrimages or something, and that person is cheating people out of their money, well, that would also not speak well of the apparition being true. It would tend to harm it. Or if just in general... If an apparition's followers are doing bad things, you know, that's a mark against it because it's not having the intended effect of leading people closer to God. Now, of course, everything people do can't be attributed directly to the apparition, but gravely immoral acts do still tend to diminish an apparition's credibility, and so the bishop is advised to take them into account. That brings us to the last of the negative criteria. Psychological disorder or psychopathic tendencies in the subject that with certainty influence the presumed supernatural fact, or psychosis, collective hysteria, or other things of this kind. So if it's certain that a psychological disorder or psychopathic tendencies influence the claimed apparition, that's a strike against it. So are situations that involve psychosis or collective hysteria on the part of the followers of the apparition. So, For as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So if these apparition followers are all confused and kind of going crazy and having mass hysteria, that's a sign this isn't from God. Finally, we should note that at the end of the positive and negative criteria, the document has a note on how they're to be applied. It is to be noted that these criteria, be the positive or negative, are not peremptory, but rather indicative, and they should be applied cumulatively or with some mutual convergence. So, for the most part, the bishop needs to look at how well the reported apparition fits the criteria as a whole. That's one reason why you can't just say, oh, there's such good spiritual fruit here, it must be true. No, we need to look at all of these criteria, and as a group, do they support the apparition? No single one of them is going to prove it. And uh, conversely, a single outlier that doesn't speak well of the apparition won't automatically falsify it necessarily. For example, you know, a visionary might have a few psychological quirks, you know, maybe they're a little neurotic or something, but that doesn't mean that the whole thing is a hallucination. On the other hand, sometimes a criterion could be so bad it would be a one strike you're out situation. For example, if the apparition said, let us go worship other gods, or Jesus Christ is not come in the flesh, well, that's one strike and you're out. Or if the visionary is caught hoaxing, like dropping roses for her followers to find while claiming that Mary is miraculously materializing them, that's a one strike and you're out. But for the most part, as long as you don't have something that egregious, in order to validate an apparition, you need a convergence of these different criteria supporting it. Does this document cover other matters as well? It does, but they're procedural in nature, and so we won't go over them in detail. One of the things it discusses is uh, when to intervene, uh, when the bishop should intervene regarding an apparition. On the one hand, it acknowledges that some apparitions need to be dealt with swiftly, particularly if they're teaching error. But on the other hand, it cautions against moving too quickly, saying, In doubtful cases that clearly do not put the good of the church at risk, 
The competent ecclesiastical authority is to refrain from any judgment and from any direct action, because it can also happen that after a certain period of time, the presumed supernatural fact falls into oblivion. It must not, however, cease from being vigilant by intervening, if necessary, with promptness and prudence. So if the apparition isn't a big one and the good of the church isn't at stake, you can sometimes take a wait and see attitude. People may forget all about this and you may not need to intervene. The document also covers which church authorities can intervene. The initial responsibility falls on the diocesan bishop, but especially if the apparition starts attracting attention across a whole country, the National Conference of Bishops may get involved. And finally, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome may intervene, especially if the apparition has had a global impact. An example of these stages is seen in the reported apparitions at Medjugorje in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Initially, these were ruled on by the local bishop. Then the National Bishops' Conference weighed in. And currently, the Vatican is studying the matter. And people have asked if we'll cover Medjugorje in a future episode. The answer is yes, but I'm waiting for the results of the Vatican investigation. They are apparently due out any time now, and so I don't want to do an episode to have it immediately become obsolete. All so right. waiting on those results. So, Jimmy, what's our bottom line for this mystery of private revelations? My bottom line is private revelations are a real thing, and God really gives them. They have to be carefully investigated, and even when they're approved, it doesn't mean you have to believe them. Neither does it mean that everything reported by a private revelation is correct. That's more a character of public revelation. Ultimately, we need to follow St. Paul's instruction not to quench the spirit, not to despise prophesying, but to test everything and hold fast to what is good. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners on the topic of private revelation? We'll have a link to Benedict XIV's book, Heroic Virtue, Volume 3. So you can get that on Amazon.com. There also are links to version uh, to volumes one and two of that. But you want to be a little careful because sometimes this is divided into two volumes. Sometimes it's divided into three. So if you want to get all three, make sure you're getting the, the right ones. We'll also have a link to Reginald Garagou Lagrange's book, The Three Ages of the Interior Life, where he discusses private revelations. We'll have a link to the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith's norms on evaluating apparitions. We'll have a link to Benedict XVI's document, Verbum Domini, where he talks about what it means when an apparition is approved. We'll also have a link to the Vatican II document, De Verbum, and the Vatican document, The Message of Fatima. Excellent. All right. So let's move on to our mysterious feedback. This time we're t discussing feedback from our episode on the fatal UFOs in Calares, Brazil. That was the t episode topic chosen by our patron, Dr. Hiram G. And uh, Brooke Kennel on YouTube wrote, uh, thank you, Hiram G., for choosing such a great topic. I've been looking forward to this one since Jimmy first mentioned the Brazil case in the Skinwalker Ranch episode. I've never really thought about the possibility of interdimensional visitors before, but it's really fascinating. It reminds me of the wood between the worlds and the magician's nephew. Yeah, the wood between the worlds is awesome. When I was a kid and I read the Narnia books, I there was a there was a little wood with puddles out behind my house and uh, we, I would go out and pretend it was the wood between the worlds and I even had yellow and green rings uh, made out of dried Play-Doh that I would play with. Uh, did you get really wet jumping in the puddles? <laughs> uh, my feet my feet may have. <laughs> and uh, Robert on Facebook writes, uh, I was curious about the mention of an island around Calaris. I checked Google Maps and discovered that Calaris itself was on an island, separated from the mainland by the Furo de Lora. In fact, I could find no bridges across the Furo, though I did find a ferry mid-Furo. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I, when I checked Google Maps, I didn't see that. I think it may have been too zoomed in for me to see the the. It looks like a river. It's some, certainly some kind of a waterway. I checked uh, Google Translate, and "furo" in Portuguese means like hole or gouge or puncture and or gap. Yeah, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so it's it looks like kind of a river or other waterway that surrounds this island, connecting it to the Atlantic ocean. But I think initially it was too zoomed in and I couldn't find that. Yeah. It makes me think of the, the like the Delaware uh, water gap, the, the mm -hmm. a, a English language description of the, those kinds of waterways. Uh -huh. uh, 
Kyle Potter on YouTube writes, couldn't the Kolaris UFOs be a secret Nazi scientist group testing some technology in Brazil? Well, it could be, and we will have future episodes on claims about secret Nazi things of this nature. But for the most part, the Nazis who escaped to South America after World War II didn't have a lot of resources of a technological nature. They couldn't really bring their industrial manufacturing base with them. So I can't rule it out, but it doesn't strike me as the most likely explanation. I'm going to guess they were busy running away from... Israeli Nazi hunters, <laughs> which was a good movie, actually. Uh-huh. Uh, Temp 911 Luke on YouTube writes, just because USA had good relations with Brazil doesn't mean anything. We already know about so many black American projects and tests being performed on its own citizens. My question to you, do you think they would have any moral restraint to do it to foreign citizens if they're doing similar things to their own citizens? No, I think I, I think there are elements in the U.S. government that did experiment even on Americans and didn't have a moral problem with that. And so those elements would not have a problem experimenting on foreigners either. But I think they could be restrained by diplomatic concerns of we're, we don't want South America to go communist. And so we want to maintain good relations with them. Because was South America going to go communist was the overriding global strategic concern back during the Cold War. And so they even if they had no moral scruples, they wouldn't have wanted to jeopardize that. But more fundamentally, as we discussed in the show, I don't think that they would have done this kind of testing on people because you don't need to do this kind of testing on people. You could do it on goats and pigs and horses and find out if these rays do stuff. Uh, and what effects they have. And so I think they would have done animal testing here in the U.S. rather than distant testing on foreigners to find out the same thing. Right. And if they wanted to test it on people, they would likely test on people they considered enemies as opposed to allies, I would think. I mean, if you want to look in that direction. Even then, I I think animal testing, you invent a new kind of gun, you shoot it on animals, you don't shoot it on dummies, you don't shoot it on 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 people, people, whether they're friendly or not, until it's wartime. Right. Makes no logical sense. That's that's a good point. Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, a couple of headlines about things you may or may not want to consume. Back in episode 21, we talked about the science of weight loss and what actually will work versus a lot of things that don't. And one thing that a new study that's come out suggests that caffeine may help limit weight gain. And so you can read about that. And if if it makes it easier for you to drink your cup of coffee or a few cups of coffee, uh, and if it helps you control your weight and doesn't have other bad side effects, great. On the other hand, you may not want to consume everything. In 1951, a French village started to hallucinate because of moldy bread. And so we'll have a link to a story about how this whole village went nuts because of moldy bread, which is actually one of the Things that has been proposed may have been at work in the Salem witch trials here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. back in the 1600s. And yes, we will have an episode on that in the future. But for now, you can read about this French village that started tripping after they ate the wrong bread. (laughs) Yeah, I read about that that village uh, when the story first came out, I think a little over a year ago. Fascinating story. So definitely click through to that link, folks. So, Jimmy... uh, we want to put out forth an appeal to the listeners about uh, asking them, so what are your theories about apparitions and private revelations? What do you think about uh, all the criteria that were laid out and applying this to apparitions you may have heard of? So you can let us know online and we'll give you those links in a second. But first, I want to ask Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be about the boys from Yuba City, a mysterious disappearance leading to mysterious deaths that have often been referred to as America's Dyatlov Pass incident. So if you know about Dyatlov Pass and how weird that was, that'll give you a sense of how weird what happened to the boys from Yuba City were. Wow. Fascinating. I'm looking forward to that one. So that's it from us. So like I said, if you want to let us know your theories or what you think about this discussion on private revelations, you can let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. 
Please remember to, to go on social media and to like this episode on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Facebook, retweet it on Twitter, and you know help us spread the, the word about Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World so that we can uh, reach a, a broader audience. Uh, you'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to those mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. And remember, to help us con- to continue to produce this podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. Once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>